All right, good morning. Good morning. It's nice to see some people here visiting, some others that are attending. We welcome you. Glad y'all are here. I'm sure some others are visiting other churches with their mothers, so we are glad of that. Um, we find ourselves in the uh, third sermon from the book of Acts. And as Dan mentioned, we're going to be in Acts for quite some time, which I think is a good thing. I always love uh, sermon series where we, where we go through books and where we don't take breaks from them more than, more than the topical series. But one of the things I wanted to do, and Dan gave a little bit of an introduction to Acts, but if we're going to spend, I think, about 50 weeks in the book of Acts, there'll be some intervening times in there, Christmas and other type of things, so it won't be straight Acts. But I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to what the book of Acts is and how we should think about it, and especially talk a little bit about Luke. And when we think about Acts, we should really think as, it, as volume two of the book of Luke. So Luke and Acts go together. They're part one and they're part two. Even though they're separated by the Gospel of John, Acts is the continuation of the book of Luke. Now, the Bibles that we have usually have the heading of something of Acts of the Apostles, and that's where we get the name Acts. And some have argued that that's really not totally accurate. It's partially accurate. Maybe it would be better titled Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a fair assessment. Now, Luke was an interesting author to write a gospel and then to write the book of Acts. He wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. Luke was not a disciple. And Luke was not an apostle. We know he began to be associated with Paul at some point in his missionary journeys, beginning around Acts 16, where the pronouns change to we. So we know at some point in time, Luke and Paul became associated with one another. And Luke 1, if we're thinking of this as kind of volume 1 and volume 2, those of you who have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. Luke 1 gives kind of the prologue to the whole thing of what Luke's purpose in doing this is. And Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, the prologue of this whole two-part series says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And this is the same Theophilus that Dan mentioned in his sermon uh, uh, when he introduced the book of Acts. So Luke, who was not an eyewitness of this, not being a disciple or an apostle, um, took what he had. He researched, he interviewed others, he compared other written accounts, and he wanted to deliver an orderly account for Theophilus. Now there's a lot of debate about the name Theophilus. Was this an actual person named Theophilus? Was this a pseudonym that he was using? Because the name literally means lover of God. But nevertheless, there was someone that he was writing these letters to, part one and part two, to give an account of Jesus Christ and the things that happened after Christ had arisen and Christ had ascended and the Holy Spirit came. There's some debate about the time of writing, but most assume it was written in the early 60s AD, uh, prior to, because the book of Acts ends before Paul's trial in Rome. And it also does not mention any persecution of the church that was quite severe in Rome around the time of Nero's reign of 64 to 68 AD. It was also prior to Domitian's reign, who had a time of severe persecution of Christians, in 80 AD. 
Meaning Luke probably wrote all that he knew up to that point in time. So that's really where we figure our best window of time for where this fits in. A key component for those who study the book of, or who study Luke and Acts is that what they remark about is its incredible reliability and its historical accuracy. In fact, a prominent New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, stated that a man whose accuracy can be demonstrated in matters where we are able to test it is likely to be accurate even where the means for testing him are not available. Accuracy is a habit of the mind. So we're dealing with a very capable writer who did his research, who did his work, who put in the effort to come up with two volumes of something that we can have great reliability and trust in. Now, we don't know much about Luke because he never really writes about himself. But an early church document was found that describes him as being from Antioch in Syria. And we know that Paul spends a lot of time in Antioch, and we'll get into that later in the book of Acts. But he was described as, quote, a physician by trade, without distraction, without wife, and without children, and afterward a follower of Paul until his martyrdom, where he had 84 years died in Thebes, full of the Holy Spirit. And I think if that could be described of most of us as our death being full of the Holy Spirit, I think that's a great commendable thing that can be said about us. So with all that in mind, I want to jump into Acts chapter 2. And I really have two goals uh, this morning. We're going to talk about our text this morning, as you see in the bulletin, or if you have your Bibles, is Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to talk about the day of Pentecost. And my two goals this morning really are, one, to explain what's going on at the day of Pentecost. And then two, talk about some of the results of the day of Pentecost, specifically the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit of the apostles. And if I put a title to today's message, which you're always supposed to do, I would call it, And So It Begins. And So It Begins. And Pentecost is a story that most of us probably know very well. We've heard about it. The wind, the the mighty sound, speaking in tongues, fire descending. It certainly reads as a dramatic event, and it is a day that changed the course of human history forever. God began working in a new way that day, and it began on the day of Pentecost. So in whatever way you have, whatever device, in the bulletin, the Bible, or some electronic device, you want to read along with me in Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven... A sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. 
So we start out reading when the day of Pentecost arrived. And Pentecost means 50. So let's see how we get to 50. So Christ was resurrected, and according to Acts 4, we know he presented himself alive for 40 days, offering many proofs. And this tells us that Christ was indeed the Son of God, the resurrected Son of God, offering and showing himself that he was indeed alive. And we know that he spoke to his disciples about the kingdom of God. But at the end of those 40 days, Christ descended into heaven. In chapter 1, verse 4, he ordered his disciples to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father and for the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a group of 120 people that were together in this house and in this room, praying and waiting for the promise that Jesus had given them. Now, Christ had spoken of another to come after him, because in Acts 1.8, he explicitly stated that it was the Holy Spirit that would come upon them and that would give them power. And this is what was promised by John the Baptist even before Christ. John the Baptist in Luke 3.16 said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, Christ had also spoken to the, of the, to the disciples of the Holy Spirit before, that, of the one who would come after him. So it was not an entirely new concept for them. In fact, in John 16, Jesus made this puzzling statement to them at the time. In verse 7, where he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And you can certainly wonder how the disciples might be thinking, we have the Son of God here on earth with us. How can it be better that you go away and that something else comes in your place? And the days of waiting in that house probably had grown longer and longer as the time frame that Christ gave at his, as, at his ascension was, quote, not many days from now. So this 10 days of waiting brings us to 50, the day of Pentecost. <laughs> But Pentecost, on this particular day, had deep significance for those of the Jewish faith. In one aspect, according to Jewish rabbinical tradition, it was the day of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, 50 days after the Passover in Egypt. It was also the day of the start of the second major Jewish feast of the year, the Feast of Weeks, which was always 50, weeks, or 50 days after Passover. And part of it, we were told about the Feast of Weeks in Exodus 34, but it tells us that three times a year, all men appear before the sovereign Lord God of Israel. They would appear at the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 3 gives more details about this sacred day and the type of sacrifices that were to be offered and states that this to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Deuteronomy 16.9 gives the shortest description, but it says, Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Now, the key point of that is this was to be at the place where the Lord God had chosen for his name to dwell. Before there was a time of the temple, there was the tabernacle, where we know that God will. But at this time, in the day of the apostles, it was in the temple in Jerusalem. 
And as we pick up back with our story, we're told that all at once there was a sound from heaven that sounded like a mighty rushing wind. Whether there was actually any wind or movement of that, anything involved, it really doesn't matter. But there was this loud noise. And I imagine there's something maybe like a, a tornado coming very near the house that was just loud and shook everything around it. And Luke does his best to describe what the apostles saw. But the key is that what they saw is it looked as if divided tongues of fire came and rested upon each individual person. Now, I googled what divided tongues of fire might look like, uh, and you can do the same thing. Go to images. Uh, you'll find a page that there are, I think, 76 free images of divided tongues of fire that you can use as clip art for bulletins. So uh, 76 ways you can imagine that, plus all the others. But uh, anyway, just think of little flames of fire that just seem to come and rest on each person. Now, two items of symbolism are in this passage. First, the Spirit's work is often compared to wind. And if you think back in the Old Testament to Ezekiel 37, where there's the valley of the dry bones, and the Spirit comes and revives this entire valley. In fact, the word for spirit and wind are the same in both Hebrew and Greek. Second, God's presence is often associated with fire. There are many examples we could use, but two of the most noted examples were, one, Moses in the burning bush, and the second example is the Lord leading them by the pillar of fire at night as they were wandering in the wilderness. But the one I especially want us to think of today, with this being the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, is in Exodus 19. And if you want to turn to that, we'll be in verse 18. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Now, we have something similar here, but something very, very different. We have fire. We have loud noises. We have shaking. And the fire and the noise, they definitely represent the Lord's presence corporately to the people of Israel there at Mount Sinai. But there's no longer the prohibition for people to stay away from the Lord, lest they die. We have something where the fire came and rested on each of them individually. The fire came to each person, not just to the entire nation. Here, God does not keep his people at, his, at a distance. He comes to them with Luke using what I think could be one of the most gentle words possible about something landing on you. It rested on each one of them. I can't think of a more gentle way to describe that. Though a much gentler fire, the results were no less powerful because everyone in the room was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that was they began to manifest gifts that they did not have before, speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave it to them. Now here is why this being the Feast of Weeks is so important. We're in Jerusalem. They're near the temple, God's dwelling place. And it was full of Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. 
They were fulfilling what was required of them under the law to present themselves three times a year before the Lord at the place where his name was to dwell. And the crowd certainly heard this noise, but they heard something more astonishing than just the sound of this rushing wind near them. Each person heard someone speaking in their own native language. And even more surprising, the ones doing this were Galileans, country-type Jews. You might even describe them as Arkansas-type Jews. <laughs> they had a distinct dialect because they couldn't pronounce certain Hebrew consonants as well as the learned Jews. And for Blake, they were guttles. I can't pronounce them either. So, anyway. But they were bewildered and astonished seeing country-type Jews, Galileans, speaking languages that they couldn't possibly have known. Now, Luke goes through and lists this table of nations, and there's a lot of speculation about what he means by this. But the synopsis of this is basically it represents the entire area of where the Jews had been. It represents Egypt. It represents areas to where the Jews had been exiled, both from the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and represented almost the entirety of the known world that Rome was over at that time. Some see in this a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And I don't think this is so much of a, of a reversal of that, since there was bewilderment in both instances. And also, one language was not restored back to the people, as there will be one day. So it seems to be a redemption of a type of what happened at Babel. But Pentecost took this confusing of the languages because of the pride of the people at Babel and brought the gospel in their own language to them at Jerusalem, God's dwelling place, his temple, and proclaimed the promise that the Jews had long held. At Babel, they were attempting to make their name great by building this great structure, and they were dispersed and their languages were changed. But at Pentecost, God was making his name great as promised through Abraham. The promise of God to the Jews hadn't been lost, but now through this powerful sign of each one being able to hear in their own language, the saving grace available through Jesus Christ was about to reach and bless the entire world as we knew it at the time. And of course the crowd wanted to know what this means, and Peter's going to give a powerful sermon through which 3,000 people will be saved, and Dan will speak more on that next week. But I want us to briefly look at a few things that this passage teaches us about the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives, specifically through indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing is the Holy Spirit indwells us. This happening on a day of remembering of giving the law at Sinai, a day of keeping the law and the multiple sacrifices that were to be offered through the festival of weeks, the perfect holiness of the law of God being fulfilled. A promise from Jeremiah 31 is being fulfilled here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A parallel promise in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is fulfilling the promise of a new covenant right here from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But how does God take our heart, sinful heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh on which he can give us our law and him be within us? 
He does this through regeneration. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, hopefully we know that prior to salvation, every human is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 spells that out very clearly for us. Physically dead people cannot move, they cannot think, they cannot decide, they cannot act. I can confirm this. I've been around many cadavers in my life. But neither can spiritually dead people. It takes regeneration, a new birth, and a new life through the Holy Spirit to act upon a person for them to repent and to believe in faith. To take the heart of stone that Ezekiel says that we have and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that can now be receptive and a heart towards God. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Nothing good we did, nothing we said, nothing we prayed, even a sinner's prayer that might have been in a bulletin or that we repeated after someone, the fact that we may have been baptized at some point in our life, the fact that we may have walked an aisle at camp or at church at some time, None of that by its own is efficacious for salvation. As we just went over in Central 201 this weekend, good works don't work for salvation. It was only through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in our lives when he awakened our hearts and opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel that we could then repent and believe by grace through faith. And because of that faith, we now have life. Romans 3 says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's not mistake this. This is not just speaking of eternal life that we have at some point in the future in the new heaven and earth after Christ returns. This is speaking of spiritual life and vitality that we can now have in the present that we could not and did not have before. This is talking about life right now. We go from being spiritual corpses to being spiritually alive and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is the same spiritual power, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead that we look at as such a mighty act. That same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is in each one of us that have received Christ, that spirit now lives within us. This spiritual life now brings us into a new fellowship with the Father and the Son. In John 14, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Only true believers can know and experience the Holy Spirit. But those words, another helper, are extremely significant. Because in Greek, those words mean another of the exact same kind. Meaning that everything that Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is as well. In regards to his personhood, in regards to his deity, the Holy Spirit is what Jesus is. And so many people say, man, the greatest time to be alive would be when walking with Jesus and being with Jesus. I would say to that, 
that would be awesome, but it's an even better time because you don't have to be physically with Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the triune God dwells within you right now and you have to have fellowship with him at any moment of any day. Now is the best time to be alive. Further down in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Because Christ is alive, Christ is in the Father, we are in Christ, and Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is in us. We do not become gods, but we become intimately connected to God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through the Holy Spirit. No longer is God distant. We celebrate God with us, Emmanuel, at, at, at Christmas. But we celebrate, and that, and that is wonderful, and that is something we should celebrate. But we celebrate something even greater, not just that God is with us, but that God is in us. And that is an amazing thing. Now, without wading too far into theological waters that we don't have time to cover this morning, some of the teaching of the Holy Spirit has become confused due to the rise of the charismatic movement over the last hundred years or so. Now, you'll often hear three terms associated with Pentecost. You'll hear indwelling of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, and filling of the Spirit. Looking at two of those terms, and they're used exclusively by Luke and Paul in the New Testament, most non-charismatic evangelicals would agree that the baptism of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit are the same thing and they occur at the moment of salvation. Some charismatics would teach that you're saved, and then you receive the baptism of the Spirit at another time, and that you, as the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit, that you receive that at a later time, needs to be accompanied by speaking in tongues or by some other sign. I fully disagree with that. I believe according to the whole teaching of the Bible, that at salvation, you get all of the Spirit. You don't get a portion of the Spirit for God to give you the rest of it later. You get all of the Spirit at that moment. You don't get part and then the rest when you fully surrender at another time or await some other event. After the passing of the apostles, and as the early church was established, and there's ample writings from the early church and throughout church history, the association of tongues with salvation and the baptism of the Spirit and those terms being related together disappeared. It popped up from time to time in small heretical groups here and there, but it didn't last until very recently. But this has become a very confusing issue in the global church today. But at the time of the book of Acts, it was for apostolic confirmation that this was indeed the work of God. And I think that most non-charismatic evangelical scholars that we would say that we should not take Acts as prescriptive for our church today that when you're saved, you need to have some type of speaking in tongues or some type of miraculous gift that associates this. But this was a new thing. This was a new work of God, and it needed verification to prove that it was from God. Just as we will see when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and Peter is there to witness to it and testify to it. As part of our indwelling with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit seals us to God. I think we're all aware for much of history that, and even today, that seals certain mark that something belongs to someone and that this is official and it authenticates it. But 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us 
and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit confirms that we belong to God, and the Holy Spirit serves as a guarantee that what God started in our salvation, God will finish. God cannot and will not ever let us go because of the Holy Spirit that's been given as a guarantee and as a seal of the promise within us. Part of this indwelling also includes the fact that the Holy Spirit prays for us. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And I would say to you, those times that are rough, when you just don't know what to pray, when the words won't seem to come, when you don't know what to ask for, just rest. The indwelling Holy Spirit is active in your life and active before God, interceding for you. I've seen some people mistake this and say that there is this type of prayer language that we need to learn um, and, 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 and take part of. Uh, John and I had a friend that was really concerned that she couldn't find her prayer language at one point. But if you look at it, it's the Holy Spirit that's active. It's not the person that's active. It's the Holy Spirit that's active on our behalf. We're the passive ones. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Part of the indwelling, the Holy Spirit gives us assurance of our salvation. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We don't have to constantly fret and worry over, over what we do and, and, and what we say. And if we measure up with God in some way that we need to maintain our salvation, that we fall below the plank and we need to do certain things to get back in good standing with God in regard to our salvation. This is something that's very meaningful to me because in college, I and my friends, we were in a, one of the most, well, most religious, fundamentalist, legalistic places in America. But the number of people that had doubts and assurance of their salvation was astounding. And it was nearly a, a weekly, monthly thing. And the problem is, is we were looking in the wrong place for assurance of our salvation. We were looking outside at ourselves instead of inward to the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit within us that tells us that he's there and that we're his and that we are his as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Next, as part of the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Galatians 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And Paul then goes on to list the works of the flesh and to contrast this with a list of the fruits of the Spirit. And I think this is where being filled with the Spirit comes in. It's not like a gas tank where, you know, we look at it on our eye watch or something and it's like, oh, you're running low on the Spirit. We need to go be topped off at a gas tank or something like that. We always have the whole Spirit. But it's how much we're letting the Spirit work in and through our lives. There should there should be rooms there shouldn't be rooms in our life where the Spirit okay we let you have ninety five percent of this, but there's this closet and there's this drawer in this one spot that I'm not going to let you have. I'm going to keep that for myself. That's still being controlled by the flesh and not being filled with the Spirit. Ephesians four thirty tells us do not grieve the Spirit of God 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We also read in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we can quench the Spirit and inhibit his working in our lives. Sanctification involves spiritual growth, and the growth may be difficult and painful, but the Christian life should always be one of forward movement to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is why we spend time in the Word of God praying, going to church, being around other believers, so that the Spirit can work more freely in our lives. But it's a process, and one that never ends, no matter how mature you are in your salvation. I like how R.C. Sproul describes this process. He says, from consciousness, from even awareness of the Word of God, the Spirit moves us to conviction of the Word of God. From conviction, the Spirit redeems our consciences that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the goal of sanctification, the endpoint towards which the Spirit strives within us. And this takes faith. Just as we need faith for our justification, we need faith for our sanctification. Galatians 3, Paul's writing, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? I think so often I'm like the Galatians. I think we're like the Galatians. Oh, foolish John, if you began in the Spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourself by the work of the Spirit? We will still go if, we're, we, if we do this and try to accomplish spiritual growth on our own without faith, without the Holy Spirit, we'll grow so tired and weary of trying to do this and all the things, and we will still never measure up if we do this on our own. Yes, we must work. It requires us to do things, but in cooperation with the Spirit or everything else is futile. And then finally about the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts to be used for service. We won't read 1 Corinthians 12 and get into a debate about which spiritual gifts. But it speaks extensively about gifts that are given to Christians to be used in service for the body of Christ. We know there are many members, many gifts, but one body. And each part of the body needs to be used for the whole to function. And I would say, if you're not involved in using your gifts for the body of Christ, then you're not just cheating the body of Christ the global body of Christ, but the body of Christ in this church, but showing disregard for the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to you to be used for the building up of others. And if this church is going to continue to grow, and I'm not just talking numerically, numbers don't matter, but into the church that God wants it to be, it's going to require every person to be involved using their gifts for the good of one another in this church. And as we close, I love this quote about the day of Pentecost as it captures the link between the Old and the New Testament. The Spirit's coming is in continuity of God's purpose in giving the law, and yet the Spirit's coming signals the essential difference between the Jewish faith and commitment to Jesus. The former is law-centered and law-directed. The latter is Christ-centered and Spirit-directed. Pentecost occurred by divine arrangement. So to ask, along with those who were there at that day, what does this mean? New life comes only through the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a source of spiritual power and energy if we are continually filled 
and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. All it requires of us is emptiness because our emptiness allows fullness of the Spirit, fullness of joy, fullness of thankfulness, fullness of submission to our Lord, fullness that then overflows to those around us. As Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for regeneration. We thank you this is something that we did not earn. This is something that we did not receive, but something that you freely gave for us, something that that you brought about so that the glory is all yours and not of ours. I pray that you would take the words of this passage, the words that spoken this morning and that you would use it your spirit would work in some way in someone's life to help them glorify Christ, glorify the Holy Spirit and that we would submit more towards your spirit in Jesus name I pray, Amen